0: Hello, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the November issue of Islamophonic. In this show, we'll be talking about the Hajj, Eid clubbing, we have an interview with the Thinking Muslimas crumpet, Tariq Ramadan, and we cast a critical eye over the list of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world. When I say we, I mean my studio guest and I. This month, it's the turn of David Shariat Madari, deputy editor of The Guardian's multi-award-winning comment site, Sif Believe. Say hello, David. Hi there. When the Archbishop of Canterbury said the introduction of Sharia was inevitable in the UK, was he talking about you? Because <laughs> we have Sharia in the building. I do
1: I do represent Sharia in the Guardian by virtue of my, my fantastic surname.
0: Right about now, there are 25,000 Britons in Saudi Arabia performing the Hajj, the fifth pillar of Islam. It's the journey of a lifetime and an opportunity to get as close as you can to your maker without dying. But it's also a big financial commitment – Hajj packages can cost up to £6,000 and this year more than ever it's the mother of all health hazards. I went to Manchester to meet Rashid Magradia and Dr Mohamed Jeeva from the Council of British Hajjis to find out what kind of difficulties our pilgrims encounter. And I began by asking Rashid how many pilgrims were aware of shady tour operators.
2: Unfortunately not many and this is where our organisation has been working for the welfare of British pilgrims for a number of years now and the Department of Business to try and promote Uh, the rights of the pilgrims in terms of booking a pilgrimage and what to do in case of uh, something should go wrong. And one of the things that we're promoting is that each and every pilgrim should book with the atoll registered tour operator, which means that their pilgrimage or the uh, booking of their tour to Hajj will be protected under UK law.
0: Now, when you're booking a Hajj pilgrimage, you can pay as little as £2,000 or you can pay as much as £6,000. I find it really hard to believe that people aren't willing to do a little bit of homework and find out if their trip is protected and if their money is safe and if they're actually going to get the trip they deserve.
2: That's true, and one of the things that we're saying is that Go on the websites, the Atoll website, the government websites, the uh, consumerdirect.gov.uk, or the atoll.gov.uk website, and it's very easy. Just type in the numbers that are displayed uh, for the Atoll registration, and from that, you can assign uh, uh, or make yourself assured that the uh, tour operator is protected and that your pilgrimage is obviously and your investment is protected also.
0: What kind of horror stories have you heard about people being taken for a ride?
2: There was a case last year from Go for Hajj in Luton, where the tour operator went bust to the tune of £250,000. Um, because the tour operator then was at all registered and at all protected, the pilgrims got their money back. But this year we've had reports already that certain tour operators working in London um, have already uh, conned people of thousands of pounds of, uh, uh, out of their life savings in many cases, out of the Hajj and poor people can't go to for Hajj this year.
0: What other kind of stories do you hear? Is it like a holiday watchdog where you're promised a four-star hotel and you're actually put in a bungalow?
2: The star rating for hotels and accommodation in Saudi Arabia differs to that of the UK, so a five-star in Saudi Arabia uh, would be equivalent to about three-star here. What we say to the pilgrims is don't get your expectations up because there's always that element of uh, disappointment to check with the tour operator and rely on their description. And if they're not relying on that insofar as they're conning people out or by misinterpretation of, uh, uh, in their brochures, then that should be reported to local trading standards.
0: Rashid McGrady are there from the Council of British Harjis. But it's not just rogue tour operators that pilgrims have to watch out for. It's an entire compendium of illnesses. All sorts of physical stresses and strains are put on Haji's. In 2009, the H1N1 virus has cast a shadow over proceedings. Saudi authorities have scrambled to prevent this year's hajj from becoming an incubator for the virus. Here's Dr Mohamed Jeeva, who is part of the Foreign Office's medical team in Mecca.
3: The problem we have this year is that the H1N1 vaccine, which causes swine flu, is a virus that nobody in the world has been exposed to in the past that's the reason why it is flourishing so quickly and that is why the world health organization has now defined a pandemic influenza uh, illness when we go to saudi arabia we're going to be mixing with people from all around the world and different countries have different levels of access to the h1n1 vaccine the swine flu vaccine so there's every possibility that you could be walking next to somebody who may actually be infected with the virus and there's no way of knowing where the person next to you has come from so this year more than any year we need to take a number of precautions not only in getting access to the vaccine before we go but also to the healthcare we need to account for while we're there in terms of cleanliness hand washing Uh, making sure that you've got distance between you and the person in front where possible and just make sure that if you do get any sort of illness you take the necessary precautions to minimise the spread to other people.
0: Now this is obviously quite serious because there's no such thing as getting space between you and the next person in Mecca it just doesn't happen and quite often you're just shoved up against people whether you like it or not. Now, there's obviously been lots of information about swine flu in this country. How seriously are pilgrims taking this information and how seriously are they taking up the precautions that are available?
3: The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is taking it very seriously and they're taking as many precautions as possible. We need to make sure that our pilgrims going across have access to as much information as possible. You don't have to be shoulder to shoulder. There are precautions that you can take. For example, when you're doing Umrah or Tawaf in Haram, in Mecca, people try and go around the Kaaba itself because they want to be as close to Kaaba as possible, and for some people it's a much smaller circle to circumnavigate in doing a Tawaf. If you go on the first floor or even the top floor, there is usually a lot more space and It does mean that the circle's a lot bigger, but it does mean that, one, you can take your time, two, you can do a lot more ibadah because you've got that space and you're not conscious of people pushing and shoving because you've got your own space around you, really. So they need to take note of these kind of things. I don't want to take people away from Qibla, you know, if I can, but when it's the height of Hajj, they need to take these precautions and use the other spaces.
0: That was Dr. Mohammed Jeeva. With me in the studio is David Shariat Madari, deputy editor of The Guardian's religion and ethics comment site, Sif Belief. David, what's the appeal of pilgrimage? Because it's not something that's exclusive to Islam, is it?
1: No, I mean, I think it's um, there's something in the physicality of pilgrimage. You're not just praying, you're actually going somewhere, you're getting up and doing something, and of course you're, you're in a community of... Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of other believers, which has enormous power. I mean, certainly you've been to Mecca, haven't you? You've seen that yes. in action. And it's incredible, right? But I'm sure the people there feel that they're 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 kind of connecting with their faith in a way that they're not just, you know, every Friday at the mosque. It's just it's just a much bigger thing, right?
0: Mm, definitely. Of
1: course it's not exclusive to Islam. I mean, I I was just in Jerusalem in August and that's a huge centre of pilgrimage, and you see all the various traditions with their with their own kind of rituals for pilgrimage, the Orthodox churches. There are hundreds of Russians and Greeks who go to Jerusalem the whole time. And we've had in Britain, St. Saint, Saint Therese of Lisieux, the Catholic Church, bought her bones, and lots of Catholics made a mini pilgrimage, if you like, to go and see them.
0: Is the Hajj something you'd be interested in, David?
1: The Hajj, well, this is not just because I've heard the stuff about H1N1. I'm not planning to do the Hajj in my lifetime. Okay.
0: Um, you're from a Shia tradition. In fact, you have a very interesting background. Why don't you tell us about it?
1: Um, my father was born in Iran, and his his father was a Shia cleric. Uh, my mother is English and uh, Church of England. But, um, yes, I, I sort of come from a long line of mullahs, and my great-grandfather, I know, is buried in Najaf, which of course is another huge pilgrimage centre. Seamlessly
0: it, done, David. Why yeah, don't you talk well, about the pilgrimage and veneration traditions within shiism? Within
1: Shi'ism, it's quite interesting because whereas I suppose for Sunnis, you know, there are there are pilgrimage centres, there's there's the holy cities. Shias are more comfortable, I think, with venerating figures from the history of Islam, particularly the Imams, and they have huge shrines to these Imams. Najaf is the place where Hussein uh, the son of Ali the fir- who was the first imam was killed and that has become a huge centre of pilgrimage and also a place where people really want to be buried so it's actually the biggest burial site some have claimed in the entire world
0: now once you've done the Hajj then it's time for Eid except if you're in Mecca where they don't really celebrate it But if you're not in the holy city, there is much fun to be had, like dressing up, eating loads of food, watching telly, visiting relatives and getting presents and receiving them. It's a lot like Christmas, but without Jesus. But to give us a break from the old routine, enterprising types in this country have come up with a concept of Eid clubbing. It's exactly what it says on the tin, clubbing on Eid. So on a cold Sunday night, I put on my glad rags and went to have a boogie.
2: We checked this uh, club on the internet. He checked it, not me.
1: And he said we can go there and we enjoy as so well. We had a good time here. But we are still here, I think about quarter past nine. Yeah,
3: we've been here over an hour.
1: Over an hour and no one is here. But we're still having appeal? a great we, time. We're having a good time here. Yeah,
4: enjoying Hi, uh, my name is DJ Paul. Um, basically, I, uh, I have one of the DJs I work for Mus Entertainments, which is myself. And I have another DJ who works with me, his name is Master G, and we're based in Ilford.
0: And now this is an Eid club night, how's it going so far?
4: So far so good, yeah, a lot of people are turning up slow and steady, it's looking good. Swarm the club night out at the moment.
0: There aren't that many people dancing though.
4: Yes, I think people are chilling out, they've had all their Eid food and they're just trying to get that digested, but hopefully they will be on the dance floor very soon, later on in the evening.
0: And generally, would not Eid club night be very different to a wedding party that you're DJing at?
4: Totally, because uh, on, a, on a wedding you would expect all the family and children to be up straight away. With Eid I suppose people are sort of more reserved and having a nice night out at the bar and dancing and talking away, but what wedding scene is much more different. People just straight away, they're on the dance floor, aren't they?
0: Do you think there's a market for Eid clubbing? Do you think it's something that's going to take off?
4: Well, the way the wedding scene has really changed now and people are really much more outgoing, club nights are being organised, I think definitely there is a new scene in the market, yes. It's definitely a a unique, you know, a niche market for this, yeah.
0: Now, is this the first time you've gone clubbing on Eid and, and if so, why did you go clubbing rather than going and seeing a nice film or going out for dinner?
2: We wanted to do something different. Different, that's why we came here.
0: So we started something different. That's why we came here, I mean, but it's really, we, have, we really have a good time here. Even so if no one something. comes,
3: we're having a great time. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: People might think it's a bit odd to go clubbing on Eid, because obviously clubbing you associate with drinking and you know immoral behavior.
2: No, it's still it's fine if you
1: can control yourself. You know, don't drink too much. You know, just so you're right. going to um, have a good time.
3: It's yeah? not so much about being e you can't drink. It's more about just enjoying yourself, live for the moment. We've been fasting all month, we want to let our hair down. So we're out having a few drinks, having a dance and just having a laugh.
0: I love that couple, I think they're brilliant. <laughs> now we did try and talk to the organiser, but he didn't want to talk to us. David, is there something a bit weird about clubbing on a religious festival? I mean, you don't get people clubbing on Christmas, but I understand that Diwali club nights are quite popular.
1: Well, it's funny you say you don't get people clubbing at Christmas, but there is this tradition of midnight mass. (laughs) I grew up in Lincoln, (laughs) and the tradition was midnight on Christmas Eve, everyone would pile out of the pubs and go into the cathedral, and there would be quite a lot of drunk people in the cathedral. And it's kind of revelry.
0: Um what do you make of the it's okay to have a drink after Ramadan as long as it's a moderation approach?
1: Um yeah that's well strictly speaking that's a bit naughty isn't it? <laughs> I mean I'm not sure what the um a local imam would think of that. <laughs> so do you think it's going to take off or do you think it was uh, a bit of a damp squib?
0: I think the difficulty is in somewhere like London and we both know where this particular club is it's in a really bizarre area of the city. Um Muslim communities are scattered throughout the capital. And so it's quite difficult to get any kind of critical mass somewhere. Whereas if you're somewhere like Birmingham or Manchester, you've got much more localised pockets of Muslimness going on.
1: Hmm. So it just uh, suffers maybe from being a bit of an outpost and, and, and not kind of attracting enough to make it fun
0: well apparently the same evening there was um, I think it was called Bollywood Dreams or Bombay Dreams and it was, a, in, it was in Wembley and it was completely sold out and that was an e-dinner dance but it was somewhere that you could probably take your grandmother along
1: right family oriented so, yeah
0: family oriented family friendly yeah family friendly seated dinner small dance floor but the, what the, the emphasis was not on clubbing because there was food involved
1: no cocktails
0: no cocktails although you could probably have a sneaky vodka at the bar and pretend it was water <laughs> Now from one thing that makes you hot and sweaty to another, Tariq Ramadan, the scholar who puts the mmm into ummah and the core into the Quran. He's always getting into scrapes. If he's not getting barred from entering the US, he's getting sacked from Rotterdam University. Here he is speaking in Potsdam.
5: It's a long story, but uh, just to have the facts right, in March-April last year, no, this year in fact, started the first controversy People were translating from French articles saying Tariq Ramadan is homophobic and he is against women. And then this is the starting of the whole story. The, the municipality stopped everything and checked all the facts. Coming after this, saying Tariq Ramadan, uh, we checked the fact, we translated everything into Dutch, he's not homophobic and all the quotations are wrong or uh, out of context or they, they are exa- they, they are saying exactly the opposite of what he is saying in fact. So this was the first step of the controversy. But what happened in fact this was the Liberal Party and the far-right party from within the municipality challenging the municipality on me. I was the target at that time. And we won the first battle well, uh, so to speak. Uh, meaning by this that uh, the municipality stand by me in majority saying this is wrong. Tariq Ramadan has no double talk and he's no homophobic and not against women. This was the first thing. But at that point, the director of the university called me, telling me, "Tarek, you better go for another university, adding to Rotterdam, Amsterdam, and avoid the municipality because they don't, they won't let you in. Why? Meaning by this that, uh, in fact, uh, there was a, a political struggle from from within between the far-right party the liberal party and the leftist not knowing how to deal with the situation because the far-right parties were gaining ground on the on uh, in rotterdam and i said no i came here to work on with city and university and this is why i'm here i'm not going to leave uh, 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 one i'm not here for academic reasons because i can find this everywhere else the, the interest of the project is both and i left while i was in uh, in holidays uh, what I got is a phone call saying, oh, you are working. There was a, a, a media that uh, said Tarik Ramadan is working for uh, uh, press TV. And they started a controversy around this. And, say, uh, and I got a call four minutes from the director telling me, we are not asking you to distance yourself straight away. But the fact that you are in press TV is problematic. And that's it. And then less than one and a half day, open day later, they sacked me without talking to me, without... Ha- so it is, in fact, a pretext that they were using because I wrote an article about my position on, on Iran because I work for Press TV mm-hmm. saying that I'm, I was have been critical during the last 15 years on Iran against the Fatwa Rushdie, against the Holocaust denial, like all these things, and even I condemn... Uh, the killing of the the, the people demonstrating in the streets in uh, in Tehran so all this was done but the point is that in fact you cannot understand why they took such a quick decision because in fact between the two controversies the far-right movement of get builders uh, jumped 10% more uh, voters and got for elected people at the European level. They are all scared because they see him gaining and gaining ground and they don't know. I became too much visible as a Muslim, so to target me by saying we sacked him, or, or, or you know, we are not accepting his presence, was the way the protects for, for them to, to get rid of me.
0: Maybe you should wear a burqa and then you will be invisible. Uh,
5: I know, the point is that now, the reality, look at what is happening around Europe, because it's a very serious issue. Mm. Everywhere the visible dimension is targeted: the headscarf in France, the minarets in Switzerland, and I am now in Europe, a visible Muslim intellectual, so I am targeted. And in fact, all these symbols are revealing something which is very deep in the European societies. So, which is the 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 the, the, the far right parties gaining ground with the, the rhetoric, but not only the far right parties. Now, what they were oh, the the only one to say a few years later, you find. Many mainstream parties saying exactly the same and uh, 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 creating a, a, a state of tension and, and, and discrimination and racism that is very dangerous.
0: He didn't get my joke. I made a joke. He didn't get my joke.
5: I think he was
1: in serious mode. By the serious sound of Tariq it.
0: Ramadan mode. Um, he does seem to attract controversy.
1: He does. And he was in Montreal quite recently. He's been uh, trying to get into the US, as we know. yes as the invitee sometimes of the American Academy of Religion. The American Academy this year decided coincidentally to hold their annual meeting in Montreal. Of course, this provided Ramadan with the opportunity to go and address them, and he gave uh, one of the keynote speeches. Now, actually, I heard that it wasn't all that. It wasn't controversial. He didn't supply them with perhaps the... they were expecting he studied a nuance the speech that he gave wasn't controversial it wasn't the kind of zing i think many people were expecting it was a measured academic speech and i think often that is what he's like if people take the trouble to read what he writes he has this reputation partly because of the visa man to the u.s of being a firebrand which i think is misplaced
0: but he is often described as a leading Muslim intellectual.
1: That's right. He's he's kind of collecting universities. He has so many. I've lost count of them. I mean, he was at Erasmus University in Rotterdam, Oxford. He was offered this place at uh, Notre Dame University or Notre Dame. Notre
0: Dame, as okay. they say,
1: which resulted in the, the the visa problems. You know, he's in demand, and I think again, it's because he's got uh, he's got kind of pulling power because he's considered to be so controversial.
0: I have to say, in Potsdam, when he turned up, somebody remarked that it was like George Clooney turning up at Venice. It was sort of oestrogen flooded the room and all these hijabs were, like pinging off around the place.
1: Yeah, but, but no does, no paparazzi, yeah. I presume. No, he's well, not quite that level, is he? He's not
0: quite that level, no, but he does ha- add a certain frisson to proceedings. Um, now, we're going to stay with Tariq Ramadan because he gets a mention on a newly published list of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world. David, are you on there?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. No. Neither I. I don't I. know if I'd make the uh, most influential 100 million. But you're obviously a bit upset that you're not there. Yasa. I am a bit upset. It's a bit of an issue. It is you. a bit
0: of an issue, which is why we've included it in the programme. The list is a joint effort from the Royal Islamic Strategic Studies Centre in Amman and the Prince al Walid bin Talal Centre for Muslim Christian Understanding. Who do you think is number one? I mean, obviously it should be Muhammad, but he doesn't get a look in.
1: Um, well, it's the king of Saudi Arabia, isn't it?
0: Oh, Which... I was going to read oh, out sorry. the
1: top 10! <laughs> <No>, sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, but here he is the top 10 in descending order. At number 10, it's Seamus Milne's favourite, Sheikh Dr. Ali Gomar, Grand Mufti of the Arab Republic of Egypt. At number 9, it's Peter Tatchell's favourite, Sheikh Dr. Yusuf Karadawi, who is the head of the International Union of Muslim Scholars. At number eight, Sheikh Al-Azhar Dr. Muhammad Saeed Tantawi, Grand Sheikh of the Al-Azhar University and Grand Imam of Al-Azhar Mosque. At seven, it's Grand Ayatollah Saeed Ali Hussein Sistani, one of yours, uh, Masha of the Hauser in Najaf. At number six, you have Sultan Qaboos bin Saeed Al-Saeed, who's the Sultan of Iman. I'm shrugging my shoulders here. At number five, uh, and this is one I do actually agree with, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's the Prime Minister of Turkey. I think he's very influential. Uh, number four is King Abdullah II bin al Hussein, who's the King of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. At number three, <laughs> King Mohammed VI, the King of Morocco. I didn't even realize they had a king. And uh, number two, another one of your brethren, Grand Ayatollah Haj Said al Khamenei. And number one, as you so correctly predicted, it's King Abdullah bin Abdul Aziz al-Saud, who is king of Saudi Arabia and custodian of the two holy mosques. What do you think of the top ten?
1: Well, it's it's not really that radical. They seem to have gone for kind of heads of state and religious leaders, and that's a bit predictable. I mean, the king of Saudi Arabia is the most influential Muslim in the world.
0: Over oil?
1: Well, I suppose, you know, I mean, he's he's... Controls an incredibly wealthy and influential country, but I mean, is that by virtue of being Muslim? I'm not quite sure what they've tried to identify with this list. Basically, one interesting point: there were no women. In there that are no top women 10.
0: in the top ten at in all. In fact,
1: women are relegated to a specific subsection, aren't they?
0: Yes. Well done you see, on I've doing you it. Know, yeah, we like all 202 pages of it. The first woman comes in at number 31, and she is head of the Qabasi movement. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. And then I think the woman after that is somebody from Jordan, this lady from Jordan. I think it Queen says Rania, it says quite a
1: lot about um, the Muslim, but also the Arab world, mm. that a lot of these people are in hereditary positions, and there's another subsection which is lineage, so people who are important just by virtue of their lineage. I think that says quite a lot about uh, the Muslim and particularly the Arab world.
0: What in their in what they perceive to be influential?
1: Well, the fact that people are very influential in the uh, in the muslim world by virtue of their family mm. you know so it's uh, it's 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 uh, a monarchy or it's uh, the child of a very influential mm. religious leader i think that's just quite interesting our colleague here brian whitaker former middle east editor of the guardian has just written a book called what's really wrong with the middle east and he goes into detail uh, about the kind of nature of the family setup and patriarchy in the arab world he's looking at particularly mm. but you know it translates to islam more widely and i just think i think you know this is very much in evidence in this list mm. but these lists aren't meant to be kind of like Gospel. that no they're fun
0: thank you very much for coming into the studio David Shariot Madari. We have now had Sharia in the studio. I can say that with pride. You've been listening to Islamophonic. It was produced by Phil Maynard and presented by me, Riazat But. Until next time, salam and thank you for listening.